Welcome everyone to another issue or another edition of our Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean. I work for Hollywell Trust and I am joined today by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you today? Uh, very well, thank you, Gerard. Good stuff. So, Paul, we're going to have we're going to end this third series with a uh, a number of conversations with political leaders. To this point, in the third series, we've heard well, we've heard from one politician already, but we've also heard from a number of academics and e- economists and community actors, if you like. But we're going to take a look now to see if there is any consensus, given the title of the podcast being Forward Together, if there are, are consensus on certain issues amongst political parties. Um, and we've had conversations with a number of people. But first, I think we need to have a chat about one of your other roles, just to, to put in context. Um, do you want to clarify w- what your role is, in particular with uh, the SDLP? Yes, sure. Um, we've been going through the experts. Now we're going through the political leaders. And I need to declare a personal interest because I work uh, 28 hours a week for Sinead McLaughlin, who's the SDLP MLA for FOIL. Uh, and therefore, I'm also a member of the SDLP. And I've tried the whole way through to not let this cloud my uh, relationship with either the interviewees or, or my role with yourselves and the Hollywood Trust. Uh, but uh, it becomes apparent when we talk today in the podcast uh, that uh, Steve Aiken, who was leader of the Ulster Unionist Party at the time and is the first of the political leaders that we're interviewing for this roundup at the end of the series, uh, Steve uh, speaks as if I'm a member of the SDLP rather than interviewing him on behalf of the Hollywood Trust at points in the interview. So that will confuse people if they hadn't heard what I've just said. Yeah, yeah, no problem. But look, just to confirm, we're quite happy that there was an independent line taken in all these interviews, you know, and the approach was never biased and coordinate SDLP policy or any other political party's policy. So as you mentioned there, you had a conversation with uh, Steve Aiken for this, and you start off by asking him about the past and how we deal with the past. Um, and he talks about how difficult it is to deal with the past, given how close it is, if you like, and, and how connected it will be to our future as well. Absolutely. And I, I think it's also important to put in the, the context of this, Gerard, that this latest series of Forward Trust podcasts follows up from the previous ones and some of the ideas that came out of those previous ones. And Sophie Long was interviewed for one of those previous ones. And she said, essentially, that loyalists cannot trust Republicans unless there's an apology for the past, and that she feels that some loyalist paramilitary groups have made attempts at apologising. And actually, everyone, every political party needs to reflect on their role in the past and actually apologize for the things that they've done wrong. And I've attempted to put that point to the political leaders. And what Steve Aiken was saying is that the past isn't just the past, it's also Mm -hmm. the present. And I think that as we speak in Derry after the announcement on prosecutions uh, over soldiers during the Troubles, then I think that becomes even more clear that there is no dividing line between the past and the present. And these things resonate through, through families, through victims' experience, and also through the political context that we're dealing. And I think that Steve is perfectly right in saying that when we contextualize the past, we're actually taking that into the present. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and we, we do see the resonances, obviously, but it does touch on, it talks about violence and how violence being used towards a political means or a political end just isn't acceptable. Um, and it talks in, I suppose, in regard to a number of different actors in that regard. 
Yes. I mean, this comes in, it brings out some really important issues, I think, actually, Gerard. I mean, the structure of politics is essentially, to a large extent, around violence. I mean, one tries to separate out politics from violence, from the, the, the role of the state. But, you know, states were founded on, on the experience of conquest and violence and war. And you can never entirely dismiss that what happened in Northern Ireland is that context is much closer to today. Uh, but, I mean, I think that listeners will find perhaps objectionable. They'll certainly find it surprising, the suggestion that the Irish government was a player in things in the same way that other organisations and uh, governments were. Okay. Well, let's hear the full conversation that you had with Steve now. Thanks very much for doing this, Steve. It's much appreciated. Um, Steve, one of the core problems we've still got is is how we deal with the past, and by which I don't just mean the the, the military past, the conflict uh, and responsibility for that, but also the, the sense of which we created divided communities. How do you think we deal with that aspect of the past and the uh, as a political leader, the responsibilities for the different political parties for, for what happened in the past? Look, I think it's 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 a very complex issue because like in many areas of the world, the past here is not only is it contested, but it's also where we are at the moment because it has a direct relevance to sort of society as we try and progress and it feeds into the future as well. We're in a, and it's not a unique situation by any stretch of the imagination. You see it all around the world. Northern Ireland, indeed, is no different. Indeed, Ireland and sort of to a wider context, the British Isles and Europe still has this sort of set of um, historical resonances that still move move towards it. But the difference here in Northern Ireland, because it's intricately linked to current sort of political situation and also how people look towards the future, that's why it it's but it's very contestation it's creating so many difficulties and where we go to as well and it, it's not as if it's a real um one of the biggest problems is it's not an academic exercise on examining what happened in the past that is one of the most fundamental problems and as an example can i give you sort of 1916 and particularly the issues to do around the easter rising and we as the Ulster Unionist Party went down and we held events in the Royal Irish Academy and talked about sort of the events of 1916 and particularly the Easter Rising from what would have been the Unionist perspective at the time. And as I, I sort of raised the issue, I said it was quite interesting that having listened to quite a lot of sort of the uh, commemoration piece that was being uh, made by indeed by the Irish government and a few other pieces at the time, but it was remarkably high few uh, sort of historians even mentioned the context of the fact that it was actually taking place during the First World War. It was happening during a particular period in the First World War where things were not going very well for the Allies. As a matter of fact, they were going particularly badly for the Allies. And the fact that the rising had been fermented very much with the support of one of those other sort of hostile powers, Imperial Germany at the time. And I only ever heard it mentioned once in an entire sort of set of discussions about those sort of issues, which then made me realise that sort of the, the past is very much a contested is very much a contested issue. And if you look at sort of Charlie Flanagan even trying to have an issue to talk about the Royal Irish Constabulary and the role the Royal Irish Constabulary had 
and the amount of opprobrium that he received from all aspects of uh, sort of uh, political and social uh, and social society and within the Irish Republic in this issue, that just underpinned how contested even issues of sort of legacy are likely to be and where they get to. So that beholds us to where we take it to, because the first thing is we do need to recognise that it isn't a single simple uh, exercise. It actually has to be looked at within the context of it and looked at within the complexities of where it lies. And the, it's not helped at all by, of course, you know, it is very much part of the narrative of the sort of constant political discourse in Northern Ireland, which is tied in indeed by some people's perception of the future, very future of Northern Ireland and the existence of the state. So it is actually linked in uh, to, as part of that political discourse, which makes it trying to sort of desegregate it. And the more I think about it and the more we as a party think about it, desegregation of it doesn't work. And, you know, um, that is why we opposed the Stormont House Agreement when it came out. Uh, we've opposed it ever since because, you know, by taking this process of, um, uh, you know, trying to um, sort of manage it as we go forward, it is fundamentally not listening to victims across the piece. And speaking of somebody who's a unionist, but also, you know, somebody who lives in Northern Ireland, has lived in the Irish Republic and all the rest of it, I can, I, I can see the processes and pain of hurt and conflict on all sides. But there has to be a recognition that because the past is contested, where do we get to in the future and how do we manage that? And by, you know, the current process, the Stormont House Agreement, which we were opposed to, that just undermines people's confidence and indeed, because, you know, even establishing a truth track of what actually happened on the ground, even that has become a fairly contested piece as well. And if you look at what's happening with sort of uh, sort of the court cases, the legal cases, the cases that are going through, there is very definitely a very strong perception within, uh, you know, the unionist community and indeed people who would be non-aligned that the whole process is unbalanced. So what we have to do as sort of politicians is, first of all, we need to recognise that fact. There is no point in trying to pretend that somehow or another that uh, um, this whole process is being managed in a, an effective way. It's not. Uh, we can't ignore the fact that victims feel as if they've been left out of the process. And indeed, the recent Lambeth Palace um, talks just really underline how sort of... Um, uh, much that people had missed the actual sort of the real sort of key issues to do that as well. So that's what we need to do. But we, first of all, it's a recognition that we need to recognise that the Stormont House Agreement's not working, hasn't worked and isn't going to work. We need to work out how we really issue, deal with the issues of sort of the past and legacy and how we recognise people's sort of fears and concerns, but also make sure the victims are recognised on that. And then we need to ask ourselves some hard truth about actually what we want out of this. Um, because I regularly talk to many of my constituents and sort of many members of our party who, you know, uh, are now sort of becoming re-traumatised by the, 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 the process in itself. And the fact that they feel as if that their sort of their roles and their sort of their people that they're involved with are being sort of being denigrated by the by the by the whole process and again that is something that something needs to be identified as well so look I can, there are no simple answers if there were simple answers they would have been provided already
But what political parties need to do is, first of all, show leadership in recognising that there is a significant issue. There's no use pretending that there isn't an issue. And then we must be able to move forward and try and identify a way that we can at least find a degree of common ground to move move forward on that. And, you know, here we are, you know, we've all signed up to support policing. We've all signed up to support sort of the PSNI. We've all signed up to support the policing board and their roles and what they're trying to do with it. You know, our view is quite simple. These are sort of historical um, and these are sort of um, cases that go back a very long time. If crimes have been committed, doesn't matter in what vein they are, whether it's in terrorism or sexual crimes or whatever it happens to be, it should be dealt with by the police service and the police service in Northern Ireland should be properly resourced to do that. And is there a role for apology in Northern Ireland by political leaders in the same way that David Cameron apologised for previous prime ministers in relation to Bloody Sunday? I think there is. And, you know, it's, I think uh, Mike Nesbitt in the past when he was leader of the Ulster Unionist Party um, was, you know, he said, look, there is much of things that unionism did in the past for whatever reason, and looking at the context of what it was, you know, uh, we, we regret, you know, Her Majesty the Queen said the same thing. Uh, but here, you know, we've had 100 years of Northern Ireland and for a long time of that sort of uh, militant force republicanism has been trying to, you know, destroy the state in one way or another. And yet, you know, there has to be a degree of reciprocity, you know, yeah, the, the, the point, and this is one of the things I've, I've pointed out some time ago, and indeed to quite very senior figures in the Irish Republic, is that, you know, unless there's a recognition that the use of violence to achieve a political aim is wrong, and that has sort of, that is one of the things that has really undermined sort of any chance of reconciliation on this island and beyond, until there's a recognition that the use of violence for political aims is the wrong way of doing things we're never going to get beyond that point and indeed one of the issues obviously that sort of you know in unionism we can be quite clear and say look okay some of the things that happened we didn't wish to have happened some of the things we did were things that we didn't wouldn't have wished to have happened in the way that they did but equally we've never heard that sort of degree of reciprocation from the Irish Republic or from senior figures in the Irish Republic who have turned around and said actually the use of violence to achieve our political aims was wrong because, you know, if you look at everything from, you know, we could, we could sit here and reel off the entire litany of everything that's been done. But I think that degree of sort of grown up uh, discussion has to be made. And, you know, there has to be not, not only a degree of reciprocity, but that understanding. And I know it is, it will be difficult for many people in the Irish Republic to recognise that because that undermines their, their entire sort of, you know, their, their, their principle on sort of, um, you know, 1916, it was the blood sacrifice, bloody blah, blah, all that sort of issue to do with as well. I mean, if, if that, you know, they have to accept the fact that, you know, the use of violence to achieve a political aim has in fact undermined the peace and continues to undermine the peace. And a, a recognition of that from the highest levels in the uh, sort of in the Irish Republic, the same way David Cameron made that sort of th those statements, that would be very helpful. So you would like to see the Irish government uh, renounce the 1916 rising? I think I think the use of a straightforward statement that says the use of political violence, the use of violence to achieve political aims, should be repudiated and shouldn't have happened. It was a gross mistake. Right? Can you imagine what happened if it hadn't happened? 
and we'd arrange, you know, and politics had moved on, you know, the, uh, the political process had moved on. That those are those are those issues, but it has to be done within the context. It has to be done very much, Bob, in the context of the time. And you know, they were revolutionary periods. There were revolutionary times, but that doesn't justify what's happened since. Definitely does not justify what's happened since. Okay, let's let's move on, Steve, um, uh, onto matters of today within Northern Ireland. Uh, Bengoa, what, uh, what's your feeling about the, the lack of progress on the reforms put forward by Bengoa in terms of the health service and whether we should actually have a similar fundamental review of other public services in Northern Ireland? Uh, yes and yes. Um, our party, the reason we, I took health, bearing in mind none of the other parties wanted, and this was before COVID, obviously, so we wanted to institute Bengoa. All political parties behind the scenes during the NDNA uh, said that they would support Bengoa and uh, it, they would try and take politics out of health. Well, I'm not naive enough to believe that for one nanosecond. But the fact was there was a commitment to get on with Bengoa and we need to do it because health, health needs, uh, health drastically needs reform. And we know that the best way of doing that, because we've spent, you know, we, we have filled shelves with reports and everything else is by taking Bungoa, using that as the framework, and getting on with it. And indeed, one of the things we've actually managed during COVID, um, because of, you know, we've had to, out of necessity, certain reforms and changes that would have taken sort of years to achieve, we achieved in weeks. And, you know, we need to continue to, to continue to build on that. But we can't keep on going where they are. You know, the health, the health budget in Northern Ireland is 50 point, I think, I'm sorry, chair of the finance committee, so I think the last figures were 51% of the total budget. It's growing at between 5 and 6% per annum at the moment without reform. It has to be reformed. There is no way about it. But it can be reformed for the benefit of everybody in Northern Ireland, and it can be made to work, and it can deliver the sort of the levels of standards and acceptance and sort of reduce reductions in waiting lists that we see across the rest of our nation. We should be no different than the best performing areas of England and, and, and other regions as well. We can do it and it can be done. Should, so should that reform go beyond Bengoa to, to look at all Ireland institutions in terms of health delivery? Well, sort of, the, the question is, uh, um, it's not that sort of, Paul, I think the, the issue to do, and you know, I have to be careful here because obviously I was involved in um, uh, when I was working in Dublin, I was worked in consultancy work, particularly within sort of uh, areas and worked in some areas within the sort of the medical services and the Irish Republic. They are uh, a long way off um, achieving the sort of the degree of sort of um, capability that the National Health Service delivers. And unless there would be, and I mean really substantial reform and how the Irish Republic would manage its healthcare system and to bring it into line with how the best practice within the National Health Service is. I mean, one of the most interesting things is that every time they were trying to do a reform in one of the hospital groups or whatever happens to be, they brought in a, they brought in a consultant from the NHS, not a medical consultant, but somebody from the NHS. And each time, yeah, I, I could have written a report before it even started, unless there's substantial reform within the Republic's health service system, there's no way we're going to be able to achieve the, the sort of the necessary synergies that we need to try and make it work. I mean, it's, it's happened uh, with cancer care in the Northwest and it's happened with children's heart surgery with Dublin. I mean, so are there instances where you'd like to see more cooperation? I want to see more cooperation across these islands, Paul. 
because you know it, the reason we and you know as well as I do is that you need to have degrees of you need to have enough throughput with skills sort of medical practitioners with a suitable sort of um, patient base to be able to make things work and work effectively and there's certain things that can only be done at scale and there's some things that can only be done at scale effectively not even with you know six million people they need to be done at scale of you know 60 odd million so three or four key centers across these islands would work and because there is a degree of synergy between the sort of the um, sort of the, the Royal Colleges and the sort of the, the various institutions, that would that would that would work on an all islands basis. You know, I am I am all for cooperation on an all islands basis, which works. I'm all for cooperation on an all island basis that works. But anything we can do to make that work effectively is good. I mean, one of the things that I advocated when I was in the um, British Irish Chamber of Commerce was I wanted the uh, Irish to come in with the National Health Service so that they would be able to do joint procurement on medicines and drugs because you pay a lot more for medicines and drugs in sort of the Irish Republic than you do in the UK. And that's based on the cost of the purchasing power of the NHS. You know, if Ireland had been part of the wider NHS structure, that would be a sort of a very effective sort of, that would be a very effective uh, method of reducing costs for everybody on these islands. And that would be a very sensible method of going forward, but that would stop by big pharma. And, and if we if we if we're talking about economies of scale, should we have a Ben type review of the of the education services, the schooling system? No, you've been reading our manifesto again. <laughs> yes, of course we should. Uh, we have a uh, look only in Northern Ireland. Could you? I've, I've given up. I've lost how many sort of subsections and sections and all the rest of it. We should have one integrated education system for everybody in Northern Ireland. All our kids should be getting taught together. All our all our kids should be taught together in primary school and through secondary education and the rest of it. And we should be having one teacher training college, not two, because the only thing we've done with two teacher training colleges is we've substantially benefited the South East of England's education system. The number of teachers that we produce who end up sort of working in London who have really boosted sort of the sort of the output of the schools in the sort of in the London area, you know, that's the kind of thing that you know we in Northern Ireland could be able to do because the reduction in cost, but we could be making a proper, really streamlined and effective education system in Northern Ireland. And our and one of our you know one of our main priorities as a party is to get to the point where we actually have one education system for every child in Northern Ireland. And that's, I think that is vital. And of course, we're training more teachers than we have places for. And we're not training enough scientists or scientific engineers for the places that we need to allocate them to. Well, you know, I'm also the chair of the all party group on um, STEM. And, you know, I am passionate about improving sort of STEM education and STEM education for everybody across uh, Northern Ireland. And I think the more that um, we change the emphasis and making sure that we sort of, and we, there's some really good stories out there. You know, our, our primary schools, and I'm a, I'm a declaration of interest, I'm a vice chair of a, of, of a primary school. The amount of effort and work that's going into maths has made it, has, has been transformational. We need to do the same thing in science and technology. All that needs to go together because we can do that. And we need to do the resources to do that. But we seem to be sort of wedded to multiple sort of uh, different approaches. In, in Northern Ireland, you know, when you want to solve something, 
what seems to happen is that, oh, well, let's go and create another organization to do it rather than sort of sitting back and looking at it strategically and saying, you know, this is what we should be doing, you know, teaching all our kids together. And, and I, think, I, think that's, I think that's vital. And also that means uh, doing things from starting base rather than looking for learning from best practice elsewhere, which perhaps rather neatly moves us on to the question about democratic engagement and how we can improve that, whether, for example, the citizens' assemblies models that's been used in the South is something that could be applied in various ways in Northern Ireland. What's your feeling about how to extend democratic engagement in the North? I mean, it's... What... First of all, I would like to see our democratic institutions in Northern Ireland work in the first place. Um, I'm incredibly, and you know, you'll you'll hear me. You don't have to. You hear me in the assembly virtually every week when I've uh, when my back's not feeling quite sore when I'm standing up and complaining about the fact of lack of democratic accountability and the ability of for Northern Ireland to you know influence itself and make its own laws. First of all, we've got to get the assembly working. And we need to get the Northern Ireland executive working effectively as well. I mean, the changes that happened through St Andrews and the sort of the gross sectarianisation that then occurred, the idea of this sort of sectarian headcount, so that you know you vote for us and or you get demons, has undermined very much some of the principles of the Belfast Agreement. You know, we would like to see going back to the factory settings of the Belfast Agreement. That's but, what we would want to do. And indeed, but, you know, that's you know. Um, in the past, having conversations with the, sort of yourselves and other political parties, you know, some of the other political parties would agree with that. We need to get back to the sort of the, the factory settings of what we wanted to do. We but are you, actually saying, Steve, that, are you actually saying, Steve, that, the, that Stormont needs to work better before you can engage in other ways that might be alongside those instead? I think that's the first step we need to make. Look, I, you know, I, sort of, I talk quite a lot with Jane Souter and sort of various other people. I think, and, you know, in the South, I work quite closely with citizens' assemblies and the rest of it. You know, I think there is a role for citizens' assemblies, but I think there's a role for citizens' assemblies when the rest of the machine is working effectively. The first bit is we need to get the machine working effectively in the first place. You, you don't um, think that we could actually you know, have... Sorry. You don't think we could have ways in which we engage directly with people alongside Stormont in order to buttress Stormont, for example? I, do, do you know what? I think, first of all, the Stormont needs to get its own house in order. Um, because I think, yeah, I the ideal situation would be is that we would have a Northern Ireland executive that, through the proper process of consensuality and all the rest of it, was being able to work effectively, and we would be able to sign up to a program for government that everybody had an equal say in it. And as part of the sort of the process of that, we were able to consult widely and we'd be able to use sort of various means for, you know, particularly for, let's say, thorny issues or issues that we had difficulty with of discussing with a sort of citizens assemblies or other consultative groups as well who were able to report into that. But I don't think we've quite got to that point yet. And if you would have asked me a year ago, I would have been... Uh, you know, I was one of the big people in the New Decade, New Approach, uh, when we were doing the behind-the-scenes talks. I was quite sort of strong on, you know, let's get constituents, uh, cons uh, uh, constituency as our sort of citizens' assemblies up and running. Uh, let's get these because they would be very useful and the rest of it. But I, the proviso always was, I thought, you know, we weren't post-RHI, we weren't going back to the bad old days and there would have been substantial reform. There hasn't been substantial reform. 
in fact it's uh, you know we had to we had to introduce primary legislation we had to go and introduce primary legislation to make some changes and to make sure that sort of some of the RHI things were going to actually be implemented. Um, the fact that very little has actually changed um, says to me, you know, we need to make Stormont work first. If we can get Stormont working first, then we can, and then there'll be a, a good role for citizens assemblies and other sort of institutions as well. Because otherwise, at the moment, you set up a citizens' assembly, citizens will say, you know, we want this, we want that, we'll have a great debate on it, all the rest of it, they'll produce this, and there is absolutely no mechanism whatsoever for creating that as a method of either influence or ability to change things, you know, unless there's been substantial change in Stormont itself to allow that to happen. So are there other devices that could be used to improve the nature of sharing within our society? The, the, creating a more integrated structure. I mean, the Alliance Party has suggested, for example, its past proposals, you know, where every individual idea is checked against a, 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 whether it achieves greater integration. Um, you've got other ideas which uh, the Corporation Ireland's come forward with the idea of a department for reconciliation. Do you think any of these ideas are worth considering? I, I there is there is 101 really good ideas out there and each one of them has a degree of merit in it uh, but the reality is unless we can get the basic structure working first and working effectively they're not going anywhere that's the first bit is we've got to get sort of um the reforms there we need to make it happen and it's it's getting the basics right now some of the things that you know one of the things i am i am very hopeful about is that you know having it long last and going back to sort of storm and house one of the things that you know we pushed for and has only now been introduced was the whole idea of a fiscal council and you know the fact is i think it's what um if we look at sort of the budget that comes in from subvention and the rest of it you know it's about 15 and a half grand per person in northern ireland um if you look at that and look at sort of how money is quite frankly wasted or handed back every year the fact that everything is still in stovepipes that's one of the biggest problems we have in northern ireland there is no joined up government everything is stovepiped and you have all these stovepipes going in different directions there are don't even have common reporting standards they don't even have you know abilities to transfer money within it you know yeah you know we hear connor murphy and others complaining about you know not being given the ability to uh, raise revenue or do whatever it happens to be. But if the Treasury was looking at Northern Ireland, quite frankly, look out, like every year you hand back close on 100 million pounds that you can't spend. You know, you, you've asked for things like financial transaction capital that you don't spend. You know, you've asked for RRI ability for borrowing, which you don't spend. Uh, you know, you're an economist, Paul. And, you, and if you were looking from outside and said, you've asked for all these things and you actually haven't used any of them, or if you do use them, you use them for. You know, uh, all seems to go into an enormous pit that happens to be sort of um, University of Ulster, York Road, um, new premises, which just seem to be absorbed money. That, you know, the whole thing just seems completely skewed and unbalanced. We need to get the basics working right first. So how do we do that? I mean, we can agree that the things are not working effectively and we can agree that there isn't genuine cross-party working cooperation. So how do we achieve that? I mean, is that a matter of the parties going back into fundamental negotiations about how to make the system work? 
Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is that we need to be a recognition that you know we've got to stop <laughs> the sort of the sort of you know, we've got to get away from this uh, you know a particular party. And I'll say this is Sinn Fein, but I'm not quite sure where your party is at the moment and this either at the moment. You know, the fact that. Um, you know the future of the future. There is no future for Northern Ireland. So why do we continue sort of trying to make the make the system work when you know we're 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 looking at a, sort of an end game to us and sort of unionism here, saying look, you know, we need to. We're into our second century now. We do really need to make Northern Ireland work for everybody in Northern Ireland. I mean, we need to have that that grown up conversation. Is first of all agree there is going to be a Northern Ireland. Now let's agree how we're going to make it work, and you know that we have to sort of concentrate on doing the things that are important and the only things that the most important things we need to do is to make sure our sort of economy is working our children are well educated and our health systems working you know let's just concentrate on three basics to try and get that right first and then we can we can move on thanks very much steve it's much appreciated thank you okay paul cheers thanks a lot okay that was the the conversation with steve some other really interesting points coming out of it paul um, especially when he, he talks about reviews and looking at our our, our systems and the need they they have a, a rethink on things, um, and a, I'd like his response or his response on the health question about maybe taking an islands wide as opposed to an island wide approach to the reviewing the the systems that we have here. Yes, and, and I do wonder whether that actually is similar to some of the things that Mike Nesbitt, a former leader of the UP, has said uh, in some of his comments as well, about actually that, that the solution for Brexit is perhaps to knit the Republic of Ireland closer to Great Britain rather than for Northern Ireland to be separated from Great Britain to become more of an economic entity within the European Union. And perhaps there's a, a, there's a theme here that the Ulster Unionist Party wants to see Northern Ireland strengthening its links with Great Britain and to achieve that, strengthening the links between the Republic of Ireland and Great Britain. And that, that seems to me to perhaps have a, a consistency in terms of what they're saying. Yeah. One of the other things then that you, you, you ask everybody, all the politicians over the, the next few episodes is around citizen engagement. Um, and Steve's really strong on the fact that he says it's maybe a bit early for citizen engagement yet because the institutions aren't working. And what he wants to see is the institutions working because there's less value in citizens' engagement if there's nothing to engage with properly. Yeah, I, I mean, I must admit, he doesn't persuade me on that. I mean, I, I was very taken by one of the previous conversations we had around the, the Irish experience of citizens' assemblies. And, and I don't see that one has to have a fully perfect system in place in order to improve citizens' engagement. And, and we've discussed this many times, Gerard, that one of the failings of the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement is that the Civic Forum got lost in the period of time. And that, and that was an important part of the framework of the Good Friday Agreement. And when we're talking about the stresses on the Good Friday Agreement, Perhaps one of the things that we need to reflect on is the, the lack of that structural connection between a, a civic voice and the institutions of government. And perhaps that it plays out in terms of the, the low voter turnout that we have in elections for the Assembly. Yeah. And, and then the final main point that Steve makes, I think, is that he says there's a, a real challenge when you're trying to 
change this place, they create a positive Northern Ireland. He says, when not everybody's working in the same direction, um, when not everybody's fully committed to the idea of Northern Ireland existing in the first place. Yes, absolutely. And he, and he makes the related point that actually you have to question whether the resources that are used are used in the best way. I mean, uh, given my, my connections with the accountancy profession, I've always been quite attracted to the what's called the zero-based budget approach, which is rather than just take last year's budget and add on a bit of extra money, what you should do sometimes, every now and again, is just go back to basics, ignore everything that's currently in there, and then argue from scratch. So you have a zero base and then you add bit by bit on the basis of competing bids for how you spend resources. And, and Steve isn't saying that, but I just wonder whether actually we've got too much of our resources that are being built up over time and aren't actually being spent in the right way. Because I think if we're going to really reshape Northern Ireland and actually get really good service delivery, then we do have to ask questions about how our money is being spent at the moment. Yeah, good point. Good point, Paul. Well, Paul, thank you for taking the time to have that conversation with Steve and obviously to Steve for taking the time to, to chat to you. Um, thanks to, to the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland for funding this podcast and to Michael Bartwise for pulling together the edit. Um, so that's it for this episode and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>